Good morning, everyone. Let's begin with prayer. Holy God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, in the world to lead a perfect life, to die a terrible death, to atone for our sins, to be buried, to be risen from the dead and to ascend to heaven where he now is. We pray, God, you would send the Holy Spirit upon us to learn your truth and live it out to the glory of your name. Christ's name. Amen. I'm teaching a two-part series called Christianity in the Marketplace. This is part two. Last week we looked at Acts 17. If you have your Bibles, please open that. Open them to Acts 17. Last week we looked at verses 16 through 23. And before I review that, let me ask you some questions, and we'll come back to these questions at the end with some answers. What is your worldview? What are your basic assumptions, presuppositions, commitments about reality? Specifically, what are your judgments about the nature and character of God, humanity, humanity's relationship to God, history? Idolatry, the personal work of Jesus Christ, repentance, divine judgment. Do you have a fully worked out, articulated perspective on these issues? Secondly, if you do have a worldview that is Christian, biblical, which you're passionate about, can you bring this perspective into the marketplace of ideas? Can you communicate this to people who are agnostic? or unbelievers, or who are members of other religions? Are you ready? Are you prepared to be activated for witness, come what may? Or do you suffer from gospel agoraphobia? Agoraphobia is a malady that makes people afraid of public places. And I think many Christians today are really afraid to communicate the truth, the saving truth of Jesus Christ, and to defend it in the marketplace of ideas. We suffer from a kind of gospel or apologetic agoraphobia. We don't often know how to declare and proclaim and explain and defend the Christian message. But if the Bible is true, if God has spoken in his word, then everyone needs to know this message. Everyone needs to know the truth of Jesus Christ, because this is the all-consuming, all-consequential truth of the ages, the good news of Christ, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended at the right hand of the Father. America and every individual in America and the world, all the nations of the world, need to know Christ. That's the Great Commission, to take this message to the entire world. Now, Paul was an ambassador of the gospel, and last week we saw that he was fleeing Persecution. He ended up in Athens by himself, without his co-workers. It was an unscheduled trip, but Paul was worked up. He was stirred in his spirit because Athens, despite its great glory and its great achievements of wisdom and architecture and poetry and drama and so on, was filled with idols. So Paul then began to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and eventually some philosophers, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, came upon him, insulted him, called him a babbler, but said, we want to hear more from you. And then they invited him to the Areopagus, a council of educational leaders. So Paul, the apostle of Christ, who was saved through Christ, through a miraculous vision, 
is able to stand before the leading thinkers of the day and communicate Christ. And we saw last time that he was provoked to speak for the glory of God because God does not countenance or endorse idols. There is one true God above and beyond the world and revealed in the world, and he cannot be captured or communicated truly through idols. So Paul is provoked through his love of God and wanting to glorify God, but he does not have a temper tantrum. He reasons with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and then he is brought to the hall of the reasoners, the philosophers, the Areopagus. Paul was concerned. We also see that he understood his non-Christian, non-Jewish audience. He was observant. He didn't start by quoting the Hebrew Bible to them. Why? Because they didn't endorse it or respect it or probably even know it that well. So he starts really from what they can know in their conscience and in nature. And I'll go into that in more detail. So Paul was observant. But he was also mocked and misunderstood. Nevertheless, he was persistent and tenacious. He didn't stop because his feelings were hurt or his precious ego was damaged. God was bigger than his feelings and bigger than his ego, and he wanted to communicate the truth and love, so he kept going. He had, as Jeremiah had, fire in his bones about the things of God, and it had to come out. Paul was given a significant opportunity to address the intellectual elite, and he did not back down. He did not shrink back. He took it. And we'll see that he found common ground with his audience and declared the truth of the gospel very intelligently and powerfully. Now, let me set this up by reading again verses 22 and 23, the beginning of his speech at the Areopagus, and then we'll look at verses 24 through 34. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul does not condemn the people he's speaking with. He says, you're religious. That's a neutral term. You're interested in religion. And you also, to some extent, realize that you're ignorant because you have an altar to an unknown God. Well, what you worship in ignorance, I'm going to proclaim to you. You need knowledge, and I'm here to give you knowledge. Now, the heart of the speech is 24 through 34. The actual speech was much longer than it takes to read. It only takes about two or three minutes to read. And you have to believe that Paul the Apostle, this great intellect on fire for God, is not going to take two or three minutes. Now, how long did he take? I don't know. Probably quite a while. Probably longer than I have. Because people were not so obsessed with time at that period of history. They were more event-oriented as opposed to chronologically oriented. I imagine he took several hours. So I think what we have here is most likely the outline of what he said. Now, what exactly did he say? He appeals to their knowledge of God, which they have by virtue of creation and their conscience. Now, as a backdrop, let me read to you what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 about what everyone can know about God, even if they don't have a Bible. Romans 1, 20 and 21. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Theologians, philosophers call this general revelation or universal revelation. God has made himself known through his works and also the works within 
human nature. He's made himself known. That doesn't mean that everyone is forgiven, everyone is redeemed, and everyone worships God. No. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So you see the doctrine of creation and revelation. God exists. God has revealed himself in his works and in human nature. But then you see also the doctrine of the fall, that human beings have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and they have not glorified God. That is, we have a warped and distorted view of God, although we have a general sense that there is a God and we are accountable to God. This is the backdrop for Paul's thinking as he addresses these philosophers of the day. Now, what Paul does is quite remarkable. He basically gives a short apologetic systematic theology. He covers the topics of theology proper, the nature of God, the nature of humans, general revelation, the condemnation of idolatry as illogical, as we'll see, repentance, Jesus Christ, and divine judgment. So let's dig into this one verse at a time. Verse 24. Paul addresses these august Athenians who are nevertheless ignoramuses. <laughs> the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Paul here emphasizes God as creator of the universe. Neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics believed in divine creation. They believed in the eternality of matter. And Paul proclaims something to them that is radical and which sets the tone for everything that follows. He is the creator of heaven and earth. Think of Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moreover, having established God as creator, it's not just that God is the creator and that's all he does. He leaves it alone to its own devices. He is the Lord of heavens and earth. So he's the maker and he is the king of the creation. Now, this challenges the Stoics and Epicureans because neither one of them believed in a personal, moral agent who is the creator and Lord and sustainer of the universe. They had distorted, warped, fuzzy views of God that Paul is trying to clarify through his proclamation and his defense. God is sovereign over God's creation. God is one. The Epicureans believed in several gods that really had nothing to do with the human race. So don't worry about them and just try to develop something called ataraxia or a sense of tranquility, not really caring, not getting perturbed or disturbed or bothered about much of anything. The Stoics believed in a universal God that was impersonal, amoral, a force, a principle, a substance, a substrate, not a personal God who engages the world in an I-thou relationship. So Paul is going right to the heart of their presuppositions. They have some awareness of deity, but it's clouded by sin. It's clouded by distortion. And he's setting it right through declaration. This God is all-powerful. He is personal. He is moral. God is not finite. He does not live in temples built by human hands. Paul is surrounded by beautiful, gorgeous, awe-inspiring temples 
many of them dedicated to false gods or unknown gods. And Paul makes it very clear, the creator of heavens and earth, who is Lord over them, does not live in these temples. He is not finite. He is not limited. He is not dependent. He is not contingent. Paul will go on to say, we are. So verse 25. And he, God, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So Paul said that God is the creator and he is the king. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And God is the uncreated sustainer of all things. He doesn't need us to contribute to his well-being. He doesn't need us to exist. We need him to exist. The New English Bible puts it this way. Verse 25. It is not because he lacks anything that he accepts service at men's hands. There's a technical term for this called aseity. It means self-existence. You depend on other things. We depend on the atmosphere. We depend on having been brought into being by our parents. We are contingent, dependent beings. God is not. God is self-existent. God is eternal. God depends on nothing outside of himself. But rather, his creation depends on him. He doesn't live in temples built by human beings as if he needed some temporary domicile. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, with us or without us. Moreover, Paul says here that this God is not only the creator of the universe, the king of the universe, the sustainer of the universe. He's the giver of these good things. He gives. That's his character, his nature. He's a personal, moral agent in his sovereignty, in his creation. He gives life and breath and everything else. One God, personal, moral, sovereign, creator, giver. Paul is heavy on the theology, folks. And we should be too. We should communicate who God is. And make him known because people today are very confused about the nature of God. And we need to know it, know him and clarify this and go into the marketplace and communicate it. So God emphasizes here, Paul emphasizes that God is self-existent and uncreated. Without God, we are nothing. We would not exist. With God, we can do all things. But without God, we would not exist Without us, God is still who he is. He's the uncreated creator. So Paul establishes the supremacy of God, his personhood, his power and his character as a giver of life and breath and everything else. See, Paul is hammering away at the Stoic and Epicurean philosophies. Neither one of them believed in a personal moral creator who is a giver. The Epicureans had many gods they didn't care about. The Stoics had one God, but God was not a personal moral agent. They have confused, distorted views of God. So Paul is making it clear. The creator of heavens and earth, he's Lord, he's sovereign, he's a giver. One way of simplifying this or summarizing this was given by Francis Schaeffer in The God Who Is There and in many of his other books and speeches and so on. God is infinite and personal. Infinite and personal. The Stoics said that God is infinite and all-pervading something, substance. The Stoics said God, actually God's plural, polytheism, is finite. But see, God is infinite, meaning unlimited, but personal. A thou, 
that we must address and have to do. Now, Paul goes on to talk about God's relationship with humanity. Let's look at verses 26 through 28. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As one of your own poets have said, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul goes on to develop his theology and how God relates and encounters human beings. God is a self-existent personal creator of all human beings. He's established the transcendence of God, the otherness of God above and beyond us. And in verses 26 or 28, he emphasizes what's called the imminence of God or God with us, the ubiquity of God. God is everywhere and God is present with us. And he relates the being and character of God to the human race. God is not some abstract entity who created and designed the world and left it alone. No, he created human beings. God established the unity and global increase of the human race. So he's the Lord, the creator of all humans. Now, the text doesn't tell us this. But if you do some background work, you see that the Athenians are very prideful. They thought that they were specially created from Athenian dirt. You may not think that's very special. But the idea was they were of a separate creation. They had a separate source and origin from all other people. So they were superior. They were in a class by themselves. But Paul says, you're not in a class by yourself. You're part of the class of all human beings. And God has created you and spread you out into the earth. So Paul emphasizes here also that God is providential. He is Lord over his creation. He determines the exact times and places of all people. So he's not some universal force, the Stoics. He's not some remote, finite being. He's creator. He's Lord. He's giver. And he's a providence. He is in control. He has a plan, a purpose for the universe and everyone in it. Nothing happens by happenstance, but it's according to God's infinite wisdom. This is not the impersonal fate of the Stoics or the ungoverned chance world of the Epicureans. Moreover, Paul emphasizes here what's called a linear view of time. That simply means that one thing happens after another and it's moving towards a culmination, a telos, an end, a goal. The Greeks had a cyclical view. Things happen over and over and over again eternally. There's no creation and no ultimate judgment or resolution. And we'll see in a moment how Paul emphasizes resolution, judgment through Jesus Christ. Now, there's also in these verses a sense of the human inadequacy, our need for God. God created us that we would seek him. But the verse says, let me read it again. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. There's a sense there, perhaps reach out and find him, that they're not entirely sure. There's some uncertainty uh, that some of the translations emphasize the idea of kind of groping about, trying to feel their way towards God. 
And you have a sense here, although it's not clearly articulated, that something's wrong with the human race. We go on to see that when he calls everyone to repent of their idolatry. But they're seeking God, but they're not really finding God. They know there's a need, but the need is not being completed. They need more than what they are able to just seek out or grope towards on their own. So we see in this passage that God is transcendent. We learned that from previous passages as well as imminent or omnipresent or ubiquitous in creation. It says that he is not far from us. Actually, think about this for a minute. God is transcendent over and above us in his holy character. Yet he is with us and he is closer to us than we are to ourselves. He is closer to your neighbor than you are to that neighbor. He is closer to your closest friend than you are. Why? Because God knows everything. God is everywhere. God is all wise. He doesn't make any false judgments about anyone. And he knows every single fact about your being and character, your entire history. So while God is above and beyond and holy and transcendent and other self-existent, creator, sovereign, he is here and he's more here than you are. And he's more here than I am because he is the great I am that I am. So Paul theologically, apologetically, wants to emphasize the transcendence and imminence of this personal, moral, creator, Lord, giver, God, who created the human race, who set people where they should be and drew the boundaries among countries that people would somehow find him. And he has made a way that they can be found. Now, interesting here that Paul quotes some non-Christian writers. Remember, he's not speaking to a Jewish audience, so he's not going to quote the Hebrew Bible. He'll quote texts that they are familiar with to establish common ground. So he says, in him we live and move and have our being. This is a quote from Epimenides, the Cretan or Greek poet from one of his books. How about we are his offspring? This is a quote from the Cilician poet, Eratus, who was influenced by Stoicism, in a book called The Phenomenon. And it's also a quote from the Greek poet Cleanthes in, interestingly, Hymn to Zeus. Now, Paul is not saying, I'm preaching Zeus to you. But he quotes from a book called Hymn to Zeus to show that they had some inkling, they had some understanding, distorted as it was, that there was a being above and beyond them. And they got this part right. In him we live and move and have our being. God is imminent. God is present. They got that right. But they didn't understand really the full character of God as the I am that I am, who is providential. And as we'll see, sends Jesus. Paul cites these non-biblical poets only after he has established the nature of the true God. Very significant. Because if he starts quoting non-Christian Greek poets without having established the determinate character and nature of God, people will misunderstand him. They'll continue to think he's just a seed picker. He's a babbler who combines ideas irresponsibly. No, he doesn't. He knows exactly what he believes. He knows exactly what these people believe. And he's able to look into the stockpile of what they believe and pick out a few things that will fit consistently and coherently within a Christian worldview. But that system, that whole is wrong. Despite all the learning and all the wisdom and the architecture and all the rest of Athens, they are ignoramuses about what matters most. 
the character, the nature, the actions of God. Paul emphasizes the imminence. We are his offspring and in him we live and move and have our being only after establishing the transcendence of God as the creator and Lord of heaven and earth and the creator, the maker of all people and the giver of gifts. He quotes these poets to establish common ground, not to endorse an unbiblical worldview. Today, there's a tremendous temptation to be syncretistic. That is to combine some Christianity, some Buddhism, some Hinduism, some stuff that we make up ourselves and say, well, that's my spirituality. Paul will have none of that irresponsible syncretism or eclecticism. There is one true God and he's revealed himself and he's revealed his nature. And we need to take that seriously. We don't create spiritual truth for ourselves. God reveals it. It is not subjective. It is objective. It is absolute. It is universal. Now, these folks that Paul's addressing, the learned ones of the day in a university town, so to speak, have some things right. They're partially right, but they're largely wrong. Their knowledge is insufficient and they are ignorant of the most important things. So what is God's call to humanity? Verses 29 through 31. Having established these great things of God, what is God's call to humanity? What does he require what does he, yes, command? 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Verse 29, therefore, this is a conclusion. In light of God's character as personal, creator, providential Lord, maker of humanity and imminent in him, we live and move and have our being. And in light of our created humanity, man-made images cannot represent God. This makes no sense. Let me explain this. Since we are, as Paul says, quoting the poet, God's offspring. God cannot be like the work of our hands, idols. This is because the parent would resemble the offspring. So if we make something with our hands, it's less than we are. But we are God's offspring. We are the parent of God. And Paul says earlier, we are made by God. So the object of religious worship should be more excellent and worthy than the worshiper and more excellent and worthy than what the worshiper makes with his own hands. Therefore, it is illogical to worship the work of our hands, that is, idols instead of God. Now, interestingly, Paul doesn't quote an Old Testament passage to condemn idolatry. He could have quoted hundreds of passages and probably by memory. But what he did was argue according to their own assumptions and presuppositions. You say that we are God's offspring. You say in him we live and have our, have our beings. So you have a sense that God is greater than you are, greater than we are. And that he is above us. Well, if he is above us, how can we worship things that are below us? Things that we make. You see, it's illogical. He uses their own assumptions, their own presuppositions against them to condemn them of idolatry. Because all around are idols, temples, inscriptions, all based on finite, inadequate representations of God. Paul condemns that. 
Adam Clark in his commentary says this. Every man in the Areopagus must have felt the power of this conclusion and taking it for granted that they had felt it, he proceeds. Do you see the power of spirit-led rationality? Spirit-led reasoning? Paul exhibited it. So did Jesus. So did Peter. You're filled with the Spirit, you're not going to be stupid. Verse 30, Paul says, God overlooked such ignorance before. Now, it doesn't mean he endorsed it or he didn't care about it. It basically means he didn't send prophets. Now he is sending a prophet. And now he calls, get this, everyone everywhere to repent. Who does God think he is? Well, Paul's told you. The creator of heavens and earth, the Lord, the giver, the providential Lord, the maker of humanity, the one who does not accept idolatry because it's illogical for a creature to worship the work of his own hands. So God is in the position as the creator of all things and all people who is closer to us than we are to ourselves to call us to repent. All people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he made you. He's Lord. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And he knows that we're fallen. He knows our thinking is futile in many ways because we've resisted God. We've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And so God is in the position. This is grace. This is grace. This is love to call an ignorant person moving in the wrong direction to the truth. That's grace. Before it was overlooked, but now he calls everyone everywhere to repent. They must repent of their false worldview, their futile thinking. In Ephesians 4.17, Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. All the wisdom of Athens was ultimately futile. They had some knowledge of God from nature, from conscience, but they distorted it. They warped it in various philosophies, Stoic, Epicurean, whatever it might be. But Paul's there to declare the truth and that the truth, in fact, is the only thing that will set them free. Now, please notice here, folks. This is an imperative. This is a command. You want some more synonyms? This is an injunction. God is enjoining the entire creation to repent. This is not a suggestion. This is not an item of spiritual curiosity. God has the authority to do this. As the personal, moral, creator, designer, providence, giver, revealer of himself. He has the authority. And Paul speaks out of and from within that authority. God now commands everyone everywhere to repent. Who does that leave out? No one. Who does that include? Everyone. Verse 31, we get the first reference to Jesus. Let me read it again. For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, the idea of the judgment of the world is alien to the Epicureans. They don't believe in one God or an afterlife. The Stoics believed in the immortality of the soul but not the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in a personal, personal judgment on the basis of your work. So again, Paul is challenging them. He is really rebuking them in grace, in love, because he had fire in his bones for the glory of God. 
Now, folks, notice that Paul doesn't talk about Jesus. And that's clearly who he's talking about, although the word Jesus is not in the text. He doesn't bring up Jesus until he's established several things. One, the Christian worldview that I've taken great pains to emphasize. Two, the falsehood of their Greek worldview. Or let's say the partial falsehood of it. They were partially right, but largely wrong. So Paul does not preach Jesus in an intellectual void or vacuum. Jesus has to be understood according to the worldview of the Bible, the perspective of the Bible. And today we can't simply come up to people and say, Jesus is Lord, repent. We have to start with creation. As Schaefer used to say, the gospel doesn't start with Jesus loves you. It starts with God created the heavens and the earth. You need to know something about God and your place in the universe before God, before the reality of Jesus will make very much sense to you. Because Jesus is the ambassador, the unique and supreme ambassador of God. He is sent by God the Father. He is God the Son. And he lived a life of perfect integrity and righteousness and virtue. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. And he died on a cross that we might be forgiven. He atoned for our sins. This was predicted long before throughout the scripture, particularly Isaiah 53. But you see, you must present Jesus to people in a worldview, intellectual, conceptual context that makes sense. This requires work. You can come up to anybody, the bus driver, the person that cuts your hair, your physician and say, Jesus loves you. Repent. I commend your audacity. It's good. But the person may be agnostic. They may be like a stoic in some ways, a pantheistic view of God. Everything is an impersonal source. They may be like an Epicurean. They want to contemplate the world and be peaceful and not worry about God. Just have a good, tranquil life. And you say, Jesus loves you. Come to Jesus. They don't understand it. They don't have a framework. You see, they don't have a foundation. Let me explain this to you. Let's say you're a baseball fan. And you're talking to someone, maybe someone from Ethiopia or Eritrea, who knows nothing about baseball, but they speak very good English. And so you're talking to them and you start talking about your habits and passions and you say, I know that Ted Williams was the best hitter in baseball. You start rattling off his batting average. He hit a home run during his last at bat. He never tipped his hat to the crowd, etc. You kind of like that attitude. And you say, Ted Williams was the best hitter. He never struck out his home run to a bat ratio, etc., etc., etc. And the person says, what's baseball? You see, they have no idea of the greatness of Ted Williams. And by the way, as a footnote, he was the greatest hitter in the history of baseball. <laughs> you can tell by how I recited those facts, right? But if you didn't explain baseball, you can't show Ted Williams as the exemplar of a hitter. Let me give you another example. Let's say you meet another person. Let's say this person is from Ghana. Speaks very good English. You're talking. You're sharing your passions with this person. You say, you know, I love jazz. Jazz is the greatest, the greatest form of music. It's too bad more people don't appreciate it. And John Coltrane was the greatest saxophone player of all time. This is also true, by the way. And the person from Ghana says, oh, I'm glad you're so excited. What's jazz? Perhaps they might say, I'm not sure. What's a saxophone? You see, if you're going to talk about the greatness in baseball, and this is just finite, just human greatness, the greatness in baseball of Ted Williams, the greatness in jazz of John Coltrane, you have to explain baseball and jazz to show the greatness and the uniqueness and the importance of these people. 
Well, how much more if you're talking about the Lord of the universe, the creator, the designer, the giver, the one who's closer to you than you are to yourselves, than you are to ourselves. And then you talk about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. You have to explain the context, the background. Who is God? Come back to those questions. Do you have a worldview that's biblical? What is your view of God? What is your view of history? Do you understand why idolatry makes no sense? Do you understand who Jesus Christ is and his call to repentance? Verse 31 says he has given the proof of this. The proof of what? That he has sent Christ and he will judge the world through Christ through the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is a bombshell because the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Some of them believed in the immortality of the soul but not the resurrection of the body, you see. So Paul says there's one man that is singled out and his uniqueness and supremacy is proven by his resurrection from the dead. And he means in space, time, history. He has the credentials. He has the authority to judge the world given who he is and what he has done through his resurrection. The proof is in the resurrection. Now, you might be saying here, well, why doesn't Paul talk about the cross? I think he probably did. Remember, I think we have a survey here. We have an outline or a summary of what Paul talked about. Not everything. Pretty hard to talk about the resurrection without the crucifixion. Because the dead man was buried and he was raised to life to defeat death and Satan and evil. So I think he probably did talk about the cross. Moreover, we're later told that some people believe the message. They became Christians. So I believe that Paul gave the message of the cross. He gave the message of the resurrection. Now, what was the response? And then we'll talk about our response to Paul's engagement of this non-Christian audience. Verses 32 through 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. What is the philosopher's response to this brilliant apologetic theology and call to conversion? Three responses. Some sneered. It seemed to be foolishness to them, even though it was the wisest thing they had ever heard. In the hardness of their own hearts, they sneered at this brilliant man who was communicating the truth in love. Some sneered earlier in the passage. They called him a babbler. Some, you might say, became seekers. They, they wanted more. We want to hear more of this. So it picked their interest. Perhaps they would investigate and become Christians later. We don't know. However, some became followers of Paul, a member of the Areopagus, this influential man, thinker of the day on this council, became a follower, a believer. And there was a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Now, what is Paul's achievement? Paul has had his critics here, but I think this is exemplary for Christian witness today in a pluralistic, syncretistic world where people are ignorant of God in many ways. In a world where Christians need to know what they believe and why and to communicate it in love. Paul displayed great courage and persistence. 
Remember, this was an unscheduled stop in Athens, the intellectual capital of the world. And Paul didn't back down. He was debating difficult philosophers, and he had a good result given the crowd. My colleague Gordon Lewis says, if you have any kind of positive effect on a group of philosophers, you've done well. Unbelieving philosophers. This is a significant effect on this crowd at this time. You shouldn't downplay it. Paul displayed knowledge. He knew his worldview. He knew their worldview. He displayed apologetic savvy out of season. This was an unscheduled trip. He had a significant impact. In fact, Eusebius, the early church historian, writes that Dionysius or Dionysius later became a pastor in Athens. And Athens was later a place of significant Christian thought. Some people say, well, you didn't immediately have a church. You didn't have hundreds or thousands of conversions. So what? You don't have to have big to have blessed. You don't have to have big, huge, measurable results to have a blessing of God. And there was a tremendous blessing. We're blessed simply by reading it. The tenacity, the persistence, the intelligence of this man filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people did believe and some people got interested in a non-Greek Christian worldview and in Jesus. That's success. Paul's very faithfulness would be success if no one had responded. But people are responding. It's significant. Luke presents this as a positive account of the gospel in the marketplace. And it's the longest address given in Acts by Paul to a non-God-fearing Gentile audience. This is a model for us. It's not Paul's mistake of talking to philosophers philosophically. Some people have said that. I could go on all day on why that's wrong, but let's move on. What is our, our Areopagus? How do we overcome agoraphobia, fear of the market, fear of intellectual engagement with unbelievers? First, like Paul, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need a knowledge of the Bible. We need a knowledge of theology, the basic categories for understanding God, humanity, salvation, history, ethics, and so on. Theology is not reserved for professors. Every Christian should be a theologian in the sense that we have a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview that we can bring to bear. Moreover, we should be able to defend this, give reasons for faith when people ask us why we believe. This takes study. This takes time. Jesus called us to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And part of loving God with your mind is knowing who He is and being able to communicate that truth to people who have very different perspectives, very different orientations to the world. You love them. You want to bring the truth to them that will set them free. This takes study. I emphasized this last week. What they call in jazz, time in the woodshed. That means time alone, reading, thinking, praying. Time in groups with people. Working out. What does the Bible teach? What does it mean? How do we apply it? This takes time. And so it takes time away from lesser things. Pointless amusements. Entertainments that are distracting and not edifying and godly. Let me put a fine point on it. This is my last sermon, so I can do it. Most people could identify the film clips. But is your knowledge of the Bible up to your knowledge of popular movies? We need to know what others believe and why. Now, we need to know something of what's going on in the culture. So something of what's going on in films, in the world of ideas. We need to understand the culture in which we live. Paul did that, but he was not polluted or corrupted by it. 
He did not become a syncretist. He did not become irresponsibly eclectic. He kept his soul. He kept his backbone so he could even draw from some of the non-Christian thought and put it where it belongs in a Christian, comprehensive, integrated worldview. He knew what he believed and why. He knew what they believed and why. So he could engage them. And we need to have a spirit deep within us. We need to have fire in our bones that is provoked. Yes, provoked that we love people. We don't want them to miss out on the grace of God in Christ. We don't want them to have to pay the penalty for their own sin forever at the judgment hell. But folks, that's not how this begins. Back to verse 16. That's not how it begins. Paul does love these people. There's no question. Elsewhere, he says the love of God constrains us. But where does he begin? He begins with the glory of God. Paul was distressed because the city was full of idols. And idols take away glory from God as well as they take away salvation from people. So we need to have fire in our bones for the truth. Fire in our bones to communicate the truth and love. The truth, the only truth that can set people free. And this fire should be a reasonable fire. Not mere passion, but educated emotion. A worldview that makes sense and is integrated and lived out in everyday life. And we need to find those points of common ground with unbelievers. Where they agree with us to us in a sense. So we can take that and use it as a bridge. A bridge from their false worldview into the gospel. Into the Christian understanding of life. Into confessing Christ as Lord. The one who came and died and was buried and rose is at the right hand of the Father and one day will come to judge the quick and the dead. We learn these lessons from Paul. That's preparation. As I conclude, what about activation? Activation of Christian witness. Now get ready to be exhorted. I don't know what you do. I guess you listen harder. What do you do then besides prepare and study and think and learn and pray and memorize Scripture and call out to God and fast and pray? What do you do then in the marketplace because the Holy Spirit has taken away fear? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. What do you do now when you're in the marketplace? What is your marketplace? Let me give you some suggestions. How do you make Christian truth known in a world of confusion and distortion? Writing. Writing, sadly, has fallen on hard times. I know. I'm a professor. I grade papers. <laughs> Paul knew how to write. He knew how to speak. We should be able to write clearly and effectively to non-Christians. This might be a personal letter to a relative you've never shared the gospel with. It might be a letter to the editor. It might be a post on a web page. God might call you to write an editorial in a newspaper. Newspaper. I've written many of those over the years. Essays. Perhaps God would call you to write books, pamphlets. This is a way to bring truth into the world through writing. How about Christian witness at the university? This is a key area. Athens was a university town, a place of the educated. We need Christian professors who don't back down, who have a biblical worldview and who can relate that worldview to their discipline, whatever it is, anthropology, sociology. My discipline is philosophy. In fact, I teach a class as an adjunct at Metro State College of Denver. And I cannot be as forthright as I can at Denver Seminary, but I don't hide my worldview and I don't pretend I'm not I don't pretend that I'm not a, I don't pretend that I'm something that I'm not. I'm a Christian and I tell people that I'm a Christian and then I use reasoning and argument where it's appropriate to defend aspects of the Christian worldview and take seriously 
non-Christian perspectives. What about campus outreach, campus talks, discussions? We need to reach the university campus with the gospel. The university shapes generations. But we're not doing it adequately, really. Think about public places outside the university. Coffee shops, visits to your doctor. These are opportunities to converse with people, to discuss things with people. My wife recently had a very serious health condition. She had a staph infection. This required multiple visits to multiple doctors, and it was harrowing. But in the midst of it, God gave us strength, and God even allowed us to witness to two of our doctors, one of them fairly significantly. So we need to be ready and willing to witness, come what may, at any time. Let me say one brief story. One of my doctors, one of Rebecca's doctors, uh, talked a little bit about the idea of truth, and I mentioned my writings on truth and my speaking on truth. And I gave him a copy of my book called Truth Decay. And I inscribed it, and I believe God led me to say this in the inscription. I wrote, Dear Dr. So-and-so, thank you for being an instrument in my wife's healing. Now, that was very purposeful that I said instrument. This is a brilliant man, and he knows he's brilliant. He's a little cocky. But I said, thank you. I mean it. Thank you for being an instrument. He read it. He said, what is that word? Instrument? I've been called a lot of things, but never an instrument. And I said, doctor, that's a good thing to be an instrument. I gave him the book. I hope I planted a seed. We need to use those opportunities. Maybe calling talk radio programs and saying something intelligent. Something biblical and not just saying, um, uh, like, you know, really, uh, you're so cool. Say something intelligent about Christianity, about truth, about logic. Something that coheres with reality and makes sense. How about public transit? You know, airplanes are tremendous opportunities to witness. You have a captive audience. One of my students who took apologetics told me that she had a long flight between two places and she was able to basically summarize the entire apologetics class that she had with me with this person she talked to. And she's a winsome person, so she would not just be talking the person's ear off. She was able to go through the basics of Christianity and why she believed they were true in an airplane flight. We have so many opportunities, maybe in buses, taxis, trains, and so on. But what we need to do, folks, is overcome agoraphobia. The gospel is too important, life is too short, God is too great and people are too needful to suffer from agoraphobia. Paul gives us an example of holy indignation, holy tenacity, holy knowledge, holy wisdom, holy apologetics, holy theology. As he went into a tough situation to communicate the gospel, we need to take up our Christian worldview, our commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord into the marketplace of ideas. Come what may for the glory of God, by the wisdom of God. And as I end, I want to offer myself as a resource to you individually and to this church. There are hundreds of you here. You are connected to unbelievers in ways that I can't even imagine. You have gifts that I don't have. Perhaps hospitality, extremely friendly and warm with strangers. You have gifts that I just don't have. If you get the knowledge and you seek God and you want to glorify God, you want to bring the truth into the marketplace... You have tremendous opportunities. Now, I'm a scholar. I'm an academic. I teach. I preach. I write. That's where I can help. I have a lot of knowledge. God has given me the time and the education to develop a fair amount of knowledge. So if I can help you, 
If you have any questions about Christianity, how do you know the Bible is true? How do you even know there is a God? What about supposed errors in the Bible? If I don't know the answer, I can at least point you in the right direction. So email me. Call me at Denver Seminary. I'll meet with you. I'll do anything I can to help you to come to Christ. If you're a, if you're a Christian and you have doubts and concerns, I'll give you resources. I'll interact with you. If you want to set up some kind of outreach at your work or in your own home and you want a speaker or someone who can answer questions, I'd be willing to consider it or to advise that you choose someone else that can do it. There are hundreds of people in this room and you can cover a tremendous amount of American and other culture with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't waste the opportunity. I want to help you. The leaders of this church invited me so you would be equipped and charged up and fired up and have fire in your bones to bring the message of the gospel to the unbelieving world. Don't let Paul intimidate you. The same spirit that lived in Paul lives in you if you're a Christian. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you're a Christian. And as Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come with your fire, come with your power upon us. Convict us of sin. Show us where we need to repent of being lukewarm. Show us where we need to turn away from distractions and diversions and turn toward you, your word, worshiping you, knowing who you are through study, thought, prayer, interaction. Lord, I pray you would come against the spirit of fear that hinders and boxes up our witness. Release your people, God, into the marketplace of ideas. Release your people from agoraphobia. Release me from agoraphobia. Take us out of our comfort zone. Because comfort is not a virtue. Courage is. Take us into the marketplace, God. Come what may. Even persecution. Even difficult. Even people insulting us, calling us seed pickers. Or babblers. Or not taking us seriously. So what? God, inspire us to go into the marketplace with knowledge and wisdom and your truth and your fire through the Holy Spirit. And we do this for the sake of Christ and we pray in his name. Amen.